Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The first event of America's presidential primary season happens in Iowa on Monday. We visit a state that has an unusual system for selecting its nominees and holds unusual sway in setting the psychological tone of onward campaigns. And Mike Sadler was one of the originals of Britain's SAS Special Forces. Our obituaries editor reflects on the life of a man with a blonde daredevil's appearance, but who was an assiduous navigator and quietly resolute keeper of state secrets. First up, though. We've warned him. Uh, we put ships in the Red Sea. They've got a choice to make, and uh, the right choice is to stop these attacks. And as I said again, I'll say it three times now, they'll bear the consequences for failure to do so. This week, America's national security spokesman John Kirby made an offer to Houthi rebels in Yemen. Cease firing on ships in the Red Sea, or else. In response to Israel's war in Gaza, the Iran-backed group has attacked 27 ships with drones and missiles since mid-November. That had already interrupted the flow of goods through one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. Now, America and its allies have retaliated. Overnight, American and British airstrikes hit multiple Houthi targets in Yemen in an operation supported by Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands. President Joe Biden said that he would not hesitate to direct further measures. It's an escalation that America would sorely have liked to avoid, one that will only rattle trade further, one that's already led to a 2% jump in oil prices. The question for now is how the Houthis and their Iranian backers will respond. This shows how the war in Gaza is slowly metastasizing across the region. And this is one of the most significant American military interventions in the Middle East for many years. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. I don't think it will lead to a wide regional conflagration, but I think it does pose significant challenges for America and its allies. And what do we know precisely about what has been hit? We know that overnight they hit more than 60 targets. These were spread across 16 locations in Yemen, and that included the capital, Sana'a, some of the key ports, including Hodeida, and a military base in the south. And they used more than 100 
precision-guided munitions. That's the Americans alone. They struck Houthi air defenses, munition depots, so where, where they're actually keeping these missiles, launching sites where they're firing them from, and the radar that is helping guide them to the target. So this was a pretty broad strike, but it was very targeted on Houthi military capabilities, specifically connected with the Red Sea. This was absolutely not some kind of effort at decapitating the Houthi rule on Yemen or destabilizing its grip on power. And if the goal here then was to disrupt what the Houthis have been doing, uh, the strikes that are happening in the Red Sea, how much do you think this will affect things? How will it work? It's very hard to know this right now because what we haven't seen yet is any kind of formal battle damage assessment. In other words, what actual damage have these strikes done to the Houthi arsenal? My sense is that these are not going to have eliminated Houthi missiles. They will not have eliminated the Houthi ability to still attack shipping. And so we will see continued attacks. However, if these have done really significant damage to launch sites and depots and munitions, then it may reduce the volume of Houthi fire, or it may reduce the length of the campaign the Houthis can keep up. So there may be useful outcomes from this, even if this doesn't completely settle the problem in the Red Sea. What you don't mention there is deterrence. This is not going to to shock and awe the Houthis into stopping what they're doing. I don't think there's an expectation in the US or the UK that the Houthis are easily deterrable. This is a group that has taken a huge pounding from Saudi Arabia uh, and the coalition of jets for eight years in the civil war in Yemen. And they survived and came out of the other end running Yemen. And I don't think they can be bombed into submission in that sense. I think the aim here was not to cow them, was not to frighten them into stepping down. I think it was genuinely to try to take away their capability to inflict damage on international shipping. And President Joe Biden says that he won't hesitate to direct further measures, ominously perhaps. How far do you think this might go then? I think that's the dilemma. This first round of strikes has been quite broad. It's probably struck most of the known military sites that are relevant to this shipping campaign. And so if the Houthis continue, there is a little bit of a dilemma for the US and UK, which is, do they then expand the scope of their response by taking in, for example, political targets, but by doing so could destabilize Yemen and could undo some of the achievements of the Saudi-led peace talks in Yemen that were resulting in, in useful outcomes in the last few months? Or do they just find new military sites to strike again and keep doing what they did again? Or do they stand down? I think Biden has made clear he's not going to stand down if the shipping attacks continue. But finding suitable targets that achieve the same result, degrading Houthi military capabilities without widening the scope of this war, that's going to be tricky as time goes on. And you think in the meantime, the Houthis will continue to do what they've been doing over the past weeks? They'll be licking their wounds, but they will absolutely have been able to protect or move or conceal some of their arsenal. These military strikes were telegraphed weeks in advance. I, you know, I could see them coming from many days ago. And it's inevitable to me that they will continue, if only to save face, if only to show that they have emerged unscathed and triumphant from this imperial attack on their territory. But I think the question is, will they also widen attacks? They have been focusing on shipping. They have attacked an American carrier strike group and a British warship in the last week or so. But we could see more attacks on British and American vessels, on military vessels in the region, 
just to show that they have escalation dominance uh, and to challenge the Americans into stepping up and being dragged into a campaign they may not want to be dragged into. But as some kind of violent Houthi response, I think that is absolutely inevitable. And you mentioned that you don't think this is going to lead directly to a wider conflagration. The Houthis are Iran-backed. This is the, the questions around this from the start have been how much Iran is involved directing things and has the potential to, to make that conflagration that you say isn't coming? Iran wants to keep the pressure on Israel and Israel's partners through Hezbollah in Lebanon, through militia in Iraq, and through the Houthis in Yemen, which is why it's provided it with all these weapons and also with the intelligence necessary for these strikes on shipping. But I think overall, we're going to see a pretty cautious Iranian approach. And I don't think there is any real risk of a regional conflict that somehow drags in America, Britain, Iran into strikes against each other. I think that's quite unlikely in large part, Jason, because all these countries, they are keeping their powder dry. Iran knows that the prospect of a major escalation in Lebanon between Israel and Hezbollah is still present. And it's not going to use up its leverage now over the Houthis in a way that could compromise its strength and its standing for a future conflict down the line. But let's wind back a bit here. What is in it for the Houthis? What is their intended aim here in carrying out these strikes in the first place? For the Houthis, this has been a big boost to their regional prestige. They have almost blockaded the Red Sea. They have shut down the Suez Canal. They have taken the fight to Israel and its partners. And that's a lot of regional prestige. The the danger here is that if they come out of this with their capabilities relatively intact and capable of still shutting down the Red Sea for weeks or months to come, then these strikes may end up bolstering their political standing inside Yemen and their regional prestige or standing in the area. And and I think that's one of the worries that Western countries will have. Naked opportunism, not ideology. I think there is a mix of opportunism and ideology at work here. I always point out that the Houthi motto includes the, you know, the charming phrase, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews. So clearly, if your motto is curse upon the Jews you know, blowing up a few ships bound for Israel. It's a useful thing and it fits with your, you know, ideological proclivities. But nonetheless, they're also trying to distract from domestic difficulties, a failure to deliver at home, a little war with the Zionists and their Zionist imperial supporters. That does them no shortage of good, I think. Shishong, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This week, I travelled to the state of Iowa, specifically its capital city, Des Moines. John Prudhomme is The Economist's United States editor and hosts Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics. A snowstorm hit just after we arrived in the state. 
There are icicles hanging from the porches of the houses near the school. The school playground is covered in snow. The slides have about a foot of snow on it. It's a little bit eerie in the afternoon because nobody's out. It's too cold for children to be frolicking in the snow. I was there because on Monday, people in Iowa will be the first Americans to vote for their presidential party's nominee. And this and 1,700 places like it across the state on Monday are where the first votes will be cast in the 2024 presidential election. Iowa's Republicans will decide whether to nominate Donald Trump yet again or one of his dwindling list of challengers. The principal among them are Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. We're going to be pretty busy on day one uh, because there's a lot that we need to do. One, we're going to declare the border to be a national emergency. We're going to mobilize resources. And Nikki Haley, a former governor of South Carolina, who is also Donald Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. We can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. This is American democracy at its most local. But the consequences of the choices made on Monday by Iowans are anything but. The votes Americans cast will have far-reaching consequences, whether America decides to support Ukraine, whether America will have a president facing criminal charges. All of those things will be decided here and in places like it by the Republicans who turn up to caucus. So, John, I know that Iowa is one of the states that has a fairly quirky voting system. Talk us through it. What should we expect on Monday? It's got even quirkier since last time out in 2020, Jason, because since then, Democrats have abandoned their own caucusing. So it's just the Republicans who are caucusing on Monday. And as you know, the series of votes in states is collectively known as the primary. But within the primary, there are primaries where people vote in a secret ballot and there are caucuses. And caucuses in the Iowa version means there are meetings in every precinct in the state. So that's over 1,700 precincts. Some of these will be held in schools. Some of them will be held in people's houses. And the caucus captain for each candidate will give a short speech and try and persuade people to come and vote for their candidate. And one thing that's been pretty striking this time around is how much better organized the Trump campaign is compared with previous events. You can't move in Iowa without running into somebody who's wearing a white Trump caucus captain baseball cap. These are not the red baseball caps that perhaps you're used to. They're white and they say Trump caucus captain in gold letters. We're going to be out there in force. We're going to be getting people to come out and caucusing for us. We're going to be making sure that people can get the caucus on time. To win in Iowa, you need persistence. So the Trump campaign is clearly organized and mobilized the volunteers it needs to caucus effectively in 2024, something that they didn't really manage in 2016, first time out. And I guess that is some indication here. I mean, to be honest, it, it seems pretty clear who's going to win the Republican caucus in Iowa, doesn't it? Our Republican poll tracker, The Economist, has Donald Trump in more than 30 points ahead of either of his rivals. Unless the polls are just outrageously wrong, Iowa looks like yet another demonstration of the thing that we've been observing for several years now, which we talked about a bunch on the intelligence, that Donald Trump has this pretty strong hold over core Republican voters. And they vote for him because they like him. They're not looking for an alternative. On Wednesday night in Des Moines, 
Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis engaged in the official Republican debate, and Donald Trump did some counter-programming. He held his own town hall. By a lot, and we're leading by a lot in a place called Iowa. A lot. And, and not only were the Republicans. And Stevie Hertz, our colleague, and I went along to that. After it, we talked to some attendees about what they had heard. And a lot of them were just very keen to take the opportunity to vote for Donald Trump once again. That was maximum awesome. He's, he worked the crowd and he's so genuine. I just love him. That included some of the sorts of voters who it seems only Mr. Trump can get to turn out. I'm politically interested. I'm not active, so to speak, but I'm, I'm a big supporter of Trump, so... So at the mention of Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and what would normally be all of the Republican contenders debating, what's going on with them? And to be blunt, why are they bothering? Well, I think they might be asking themselves that at the moment. DeSantis's campaign has been losing air. Nikki Haley has been doing a little bit better in the polls. She is, as we've already said, a long way behind Donald Trump. But you could see there is a theory of the case for her. Were she to come second in Iowa, not a million miles behind Donald Trump, and then were she to win in New Hampshire, where she's polling quite strongly, then the third Republican primary happens in South Carolina. That's the state where she was governor, so she's fairly well known. Were she to do okay in Iowa, win in New Hampshire, win in South Carolina, you could suddenly see that the whole idea that Trump is the inevitable nominee would look a bit shaky. And so I think that's why she's bothering. And Ron DeSantis will have some version of the same. You can see then why it would matter for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to win Iowa and upset expectations. But what's in it for Mr. Trump? I think he cares for the same reason they do in that it's the first in the nation. So he lost in 2016. He was beaten by Ted Cruz and then he went on to win in New Hampshire. So it's not like you can't recover from a defeat in Iowa. Plenty of candidates have. In fact, Iowa sometimes throws up some candidates who then don't go on to do terribly well in the Republican primary, partly because of its caucus system and partly because conservative Christian evangelicals are overrepresented. But with Trump being so far ahead in the polls, you'd expect him to win. And if he doesn't win, people will suddenly ask a lot of questions about whether he's really as strong as he seems. And I think one of the things about Donald Trump's political appeal is he's extremely keen to project strength. And so When he looks weak, when he looks like a loser, that's pretty damaging for him. And something that you said was different this time around in Iowa is what the the Democrats are up to. What's going on there? The two forms of difference compared with 2020, where I spent time traipsing around again in the snow, Jason, in Muscatine, Iowa, after Joe Biden. In 2020, that was a competitive primary for the Democrats. In 2024, it's not. Joe Biden is not being challenged by well-known Democrats. And then the other thing is a structural change. So in 2016 and 2020, the Democrats' Iowa caucuses were a bit of a mess, and they've responded to that by changing the process a bit. So there will be some in-person caucusing on Monday, but the Democratic Party in Iowa is also encouraging people just to vote by mail, and those mail-in ballots can be requested up until the end of February. So, I mean, it's a foregone conclusion that Joe Biden wins this, But the confirmation of that victory and the margin of it will take a little bit longer. And John, I assume that you'll be talking about Iowa and all things primaries on checks and balance for uh, for some time on the show. 
Yes, this week's episode is about Iowa, about Donald Trump's position, about whether he's moderating and looking towards the general election, and what the result of Iowa means. So yeah, please do go listen to that if you're interested in this stuff. And Jason, thanks as ever for having me on. The pleasure is truly mine, John. Now, listeners will be intimately aware that Checks and Balance and all of our award-winning weekly shows are available only to subscribers, either to our print or digital editions or to Economist Podcasts Plus. If you're not already a subscriber, don't you want to be? Just search Economist Podcasts to find out how. An American who met Mike Sadler in 1943 was struck most of all by his eyes. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. They were big, round and sky blue, and they shone out of a face that was sun-baked and grizzled with beard. He looked to the American like some drug-crazed French poet who might at any moment do some crazy thing. And in fact, Mike Sadler had just done such a thing. He'd trudged for a hundred miles through the Tunisian desert with two other people trying to find safety. He'd got caught on a raid by the Germans. His group had all been taken prisoner, except for those three. He'd managed to get down into gullies with them, and then they'd taken off by nightfall and made an escape. He led them between mountains and salt lakes, knowing the lie of the land quite well, but mostly navigating by the stars. And he managed to get them back to the part of North Africa that was owned by the Free French and therefore to safety. And that was what he generally managed to do, impressive skills which were extremely useful to the SAS, which had been founded just two years before, and of which he was an original member. Mike Sadler had found that he'd been fascinated by the very idea that celestial signs could tell you exactly where you were on the ground. And he thought he might like to train and learn about it. He'd never been any good at maths or geometry at school, but he had always been quite interested in angles of fire from guns. He was also given some maps when he first went to the desert with the SAS. The maps were largely blank, however, because there was simply nothing to record and often no one had been there. There would just be a line of dots across, labelled suspected camel track. They travelled in customised jeeps, with the top taken off, the windscreen removed, and various changes made, which meant they could take more ammunition and food and water. So they were suited to the desert, but not to the weather, because they were open to sun, wind, sandstorms and everything else. So it was not at all comfortable to be in one. Nevertheless, he got extremely good at the task of navigation. He actually once took a group of men 
400 miles across the desert to attack an airbase. And he got them back again, with almost nothing to guide him, nothing at all except the stars. He worked very carefully, keeping very accurate tables of where the stars had been positioned one night, where they would be the next night, and so on. He left nothing to chance. He was always an extremely cautious navigator. He came to really adore the desert. What he liked about working for the SAS was that it had a rather loose structure. It was not as hierarchical as the army, and there was none of the militarism that he disliked. He'd always been very suspicious of military culture. He didn't like what he saw in Nazi Germany when he went there as a teenager and saw youth workers walking with their spades like rifles over their shoulders. He didn't like the hierarchy that had made an officer once demand that he let his men sleep in their boots so they could easily get up in the mornings and get out of their sleeping bags. He realized that they would not be able to get out of their sleeping bags if they were wearing boots and had an argument. He was then a sergeant and the officer told him that if he didn't apologize for arguing with him, he would be reduced to the ranks. Mike Sadler simply said, "Okay, I will reduce myself to the ranks. And he went back because he would far rather be working among friends and colleagues than feel that he was simply obeying orders. The SAS appealed to him because it was a band of jolly good chaps, as he saw them, who had been recruited to get on well together, and by and large they did. The other reason he liked it was that he was increasingly keen on covert operations and intelligence. Being in the SAS really gave him a taste for that. And when he eventually left it, he joined MI6 and spent the rest of his working life doing intelligence. He would never reveal exactly what it was, except that it involved an awful lot of sailing. And being in the desert had actually prepared him for sailing because he had realized that there was another landscape or seascape that you had to find your way around in by the stars. And he loved that idea that you had this immense, free, open place where you could go in any direction, provided you had the skills to set yourself on the right path. When he became very, very old, his sky-blue eyes were blind, but behind them lay endless vistas of desert and sea both mapped by the stars. Anne Rowe on Mike Sadler, who's died aged 103. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill, our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our U.S. audio correspondent is Stevie Hertz, and our senior creative producer is William Warren. 
Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadiva, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for The Weekend Intelligence. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.